We are in, uh, it's called uh, Revelation Revealed, this series. The book of Revelation has in it, is pointed towards and prophesies the climax, the plan that God has for all men and women. Isn't it wild? We are going to be alive for this. We're going to be watching this. And we'll be talking about probably into January. It's 22 chapters. And it's the climax of God's plan for me and you. The book of Revelation is the least preached on book in the Bible. And just going over two key scriptures here, you, you've missed some, a chapter and a half so far if you hadn't been here. So you know what's going on. This is Jesus Christ himself talking to the apostle John. I wonder if I said Paul in the last. I think I said Paul in the last. Uh, did I? He's talking to the Apostle John, not, not Paul. It's, John is experiencing an open vision of Jesus, all right? And he's saying in Revelation 1.11, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book. Send the book, not books. So he wrote all this down, and the book gets sent, and it makes its trip around to each one of these seven churches, each church has a letter addressed to it, but they got to read all the letters. And these churches were, that were in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then Revelation 1.20, still Jesus talking. Mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And so, as we've said, the seven stars in the hands of Jesus Christ here, most scholars believe that represents seven pastors. You can't find anywhere in the Bible where God's holding angels in his right hand. But you can find plenty of places where he's holding his children in his right hand. The word for angels in the Greek there can be translated not just angel, but as a human messenger. Also, there are 14 other times Revelation in Revelation where this word for angel is referring to an actual human. You see the seven lampstands or candlesticks are, are represented by the seven churches, and he's walking among those churches. Let's just read what we're just doing, uh, five scriptures Six scriptures, 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. Thou holdest fast my name. You have not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you. That means he was slain in front of them, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the, them, them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's this them. It's this them in the church that he's talking to, and that he's concerned about. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Just a side point. If we can understand these seven letters, I believe we can map the spiritual condition of any church we go to. If we go to it enough times, we can map the spiritual condition through these seven letters while we're walking on the earth in these last days. I believe it's not coincidental. You've got seven letters to seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3, but beginning in Revelation chapter 4, we're going to be watching from heaven. The rapture would have come. But it just so happens, in two and three, you've got seven letters to seven churches. These are for us. We need to heed their warnings, pitfalls mentioned in these letters. Listen 
to the commendations as if he were writing these letters to us, if he were walking among us, observing us. I believe Kenneth Hagin had a vision of, of Jesus in church while the preacher's preaching and he's just looking at each person closely. And then you go to the next person. And, and, and it was, I believe, Kenneth Hagin says, what are you doing? And he said, I'm, I'm seeing how much they are focused on me. You know, and it's, it just changes it. When he's walking among these churches. He's personally there. But, but another thing, you look at these churches, these letters are written to, and they're perceiving about their own church. It's not what Jesus thinks. And you have to keep that in mind, not only for our church, but for our individual lives. If there's a variance from what these guys thought about themselves to what Jesus Christ actually thinks about them, that tells us very well, that very well could be the case with us individually or this church. It's really about just being open to, to possibly receiving correction. And per, per, Pergamos is 48 miles north of Smyrna. Smyrna is the second letter that was written, and we talked about last week. These first three cities uh, that we talked about, the first church we studied was Ephesus is considered the great political center. Smyrna, last week, the city of the church we talked about last week was the great commercial center of that region. Pergamos, or you'll see it called Pergamum, M-U-M, or Pergamum, M-O-M, it can be called any of these three. King James calls it Pergamos, was considered the great religious center. Pergamos was the farthest north in this region of all these seven churches mentioned in Revelation. Pergamos was intentionally built to look like and be like Athens in every way. It was a sophisticated city. It was the official capital of the Roman province of Asia. For 200 years, and remember, we're not talking about Asia. We're talking about Asia being a Roman province, not the continent of Asia. This is where these churches were. We're in West today. It would be Western Turkey. Pergamos, like Smyrna, who we talked about last week, was smart enough to ally with the Romans every war right away. And it really helped him. Pergamos, the city, had an estimated population of 200,000 people. Pergamos was teeming with idols and pagan temples. It was viewed as the epicenter of idolatry during the first century. Even 300 years after the New Testament was written, Pergamos was completely immersed in, occult, in the occult and idolatry. You actually have a Roman emperor that had been raised a Christian he left the Christian faith to become a pagan, and in order to do that, he moved, moved to Pergamos. Probably the most demonic thing in the whole city was a huge altar to Zeus. To honor Zeus, they had an eight, on, an, on top of an 800-foot high cliff, they had a 50-foot altar that was 125 by 115 feet, like overlooking the city on this 800-foot cliff. Altar was gilded in gold covered with huge frescoes, and this was just one of many, many temples and altars in the city. It is considered to be spiritually one of the darkest places in the Roman Empire. The word Pergamos means mixed marriage, and it goes with the subject of the letter, and you'll see that. The, the definition of all these cities actually goes with the subject that the that Jesus is writing this letter, the subject on the letter Jesus is writing these churches. Revelation 2.12, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. So you have Jesus giving himself a name. He calls himself he which has the sharp sword with two edges. There's a reason I believe he's doing this because a sharp sword with two edges is a symbolism for the word of God. He also calls him, he's called in John 1.1, the living word and we find out that this church's doctrine and theology was starting to slip. The word can be used, the word which has two edges. 
is used in both the realm of grace and judgment. And we see in Ephesians 6, it's called the sword of the spirit. You have in Hebrews 4.12, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder. Matthew 10.34, this is Jesus. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Luke 12.51, suppose you that I come to give peace on earth. I tell you no, but rather division. And this is what he's, he's talking about. This, this Pergamos thing today. This church is courting the friendship with the world. We'll see this church condoning all kinds of things that should not be. And you could say he's telling them there will be quick judgment. But he doesn't just use the word judgment. But as we can see, he says, I will come unto you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You guys know God never intended for the church the real body of Christ, whether if it was back then in, in times of these letters or, or now, never intended for the church to be operating in fear, hiding, not even trying to contest the spiritual darkness in the world. He wants the church to be in a position of strength and influence. And you can see that in, the, in, in Revelation 2.12, the the Greek word he uses for church is ecclesia. Before we go farther into this, the city of Pergamos was the home base for something called the pre-consul of Rome. This guy was the top guy in all these cities of the province of Asia. You could call him the Roman president of the area. He answered only to the emperor. He actually sat on a throne. This guy had a sword. A real life sword, when he dropped the sword, it meant execution. Depending on how he operated the sword from his throne, life could be given or death could be given. He really ruled everything that went on in these other cities that we're talking about. He ruled from Pergamos. And because Christians would not partake in the worship of the emperor, this proconsul was always there to judge them, always there to execute them. These Christians were in constant danger because of this Roman proconsul. A little bit more background, these Christians in Pergamos were struggling because the emperor Domitian was in power. Domitian absolutely hated the Christian church. He just wanted to destroy it with everything he had. Remember, it was dark. and The, the church had to go underground. Can you imagine like having to hide like, you have to trust everyone coming to church that they weren't followed, that they had sense enough not to be followed, having to hide, to congregate probably in small numbers. I remember once in Myanmar, they shut this guy down anytime he got up over 100 people. Boom, they would be there. They just did not want. It wasn't, it's was probably not as bad. Myanmar is not a great place. But I'm saying, I remember that. I remember being there and then being concerned based on how many people were there because if there were too many people there, they were coming to shut it down. But this is even worse. These people are facing, they're facing life and death just for having church. Revelation 2.13, I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, thou holdest fast my name. You have not denied my faith, which they had the chance to do, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you. That means they saw it, where Satan dwelleth. So this church is dwelling in the heart of Satan's seat, Satan's headquarters. Satan has, and his demons are limited to locality. They cannot be everywhere at once. We know that from Job. We know that from uh, numerous places in the Bible. His demons have territories. We know that from Daniel 10. Nimrod was the first world dictator. He founded Babel, which eventually turned into Babylon. History says when Cyrus conquered Babylon, all those Babylonian magicians, satanic priests, took all their money, they took all their artifacts and went to Pergamos. Eventually, you see them move the headquarters to Rome from Pergamos. The headquarters of idolatry and occultic worship goes from Babylon to Pergamos to Rome. 
over the centuries. And you can see this is such a wicked city. Twice Jesus calls it the seat of Satan. The Greek word for seat in this verse is thronos. You get the word throne. That's where we get the word throne. Satan was able, as he talked about earlier, to rule the entire Roman providence of Asia through the authorities that he controlled in Pergamos. What Jesus is saying in verse 13 is that he knew their works. And he's saying it in the context of the Greek language, um, this is not something that's being reported to them. This word know means to see or perceive or understand by personal observation. This is saying Jesus was personally observing and watching this church, and what did he see? Probably because it was Satan's seat, the number of demons, soldiers in the city, fallen angels in that city was probably uh, more there than anywhere else in the world. Maybe more in Jerusalem, maybe more in Jerusalem, but, but I would guess that this was the, at least number two. And, and, and he underst- Jesus understood what these people were going through on a daily basis. And he understood that the proconsul in Rome was completely controlled by Satan. And that word in the phrase where Jesus is telling them, I know where thou dwell to them, that means settle down. And he's also Satan, he's saying, the people there are settled there, as well as Satan is settled down there. And the Roman citizens, I don't know if people know this, but they had, they, they, they had to live where the Roman government told them to live. The people that made up the church in Pergamos were legally bound to live there because that was where the Roman government told them they had to live. This also means generations before them of their families lived there. So this word, they they came out of the paganism. They came out of the occult. They knew what it was. By using the Greek word for Satan's throne, Jesus is indicating that Satan was the absolute master of the city, and he actually had a throne in the spirit. He actually is sitting on a throne there. In, In essence, Jesus is calling on the church to take him out of his seat. It's no different than what we're supposed to do today. He's calling us to, if if not to unseat Satan, make him move, at least oppose him, at least distract him from our families, our cities, our region, and even the country we live in. And he is complimenting them when he says Satan has settled down, is sitting on his throne. You are holding fast and have not denied my faith. And what that's saying, according to Greek scholar Rick Renner, was that means in the Greek is when you had the opportunity to break your vow and walk away, you did not do it. This martyr by the name of Antipas was exercising his authority. There's writings on him. On a daily basis, he was walking around that city Healing people. How, how did they get converts? If they were such outcasts, how could they? They had to have the power of God. They had to be operating in the power of God. Because they were such outcasts, there was such danger. How are you going to convert somebody? You get them healed. And he was going daily. He was casting demons out of people. He was successful. And someone reported him. And he wound up in front of the proconsul in a trial. And the Roman governor told him, if you have to repent of casting out demons publicly, you have to publicly denounce Christianity and show proof that you've converted to the pagan religion. And so, Revelation 2.13, let's look at that phrase. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Who was slain among you. That word for slain in the Greek means butchery. In the middle of the metropolis at Pergamos, the middle of the city, there was a giant brazen bull. I'd say probably as long as the middle of this stage, you know, maybe this high, huge. It was made of metal, and it was hollow in the inside. 
Pipes ran through his head of the bull, and music could be made to come from those pipes. They would put a martyr in there through a side door, and they would light a fire under the bull, and the metal would, would heat up all the way around. I, I, I was thinking about this. I would rather burn at the stake because you'd be like flipping yourself, right? Of what part is touching? Because it would be so hot. You would slowly cook. Really, I mean, I mean on both sides. And, you know, the pipes that were in the head of the bull, you could, you know, this is how evil these people were. Because of those pipes, you could hear the screams of the martyrs, and it would actually seem if the bull was alive, because it would seem like the bull was making those sounds. These people enjoyed this. They thought they were accomplishing something when they put these people through this. Just think about this. Animals wouldn't even do this. Animals don't do this to each other. It literally fry them to death, and later, these people, they would pull the bones of the martyr out of the bull, polish them up, and wear them as jewelry. So this is how far a human being can, can fall. So this is not a slow death for Antipas. And we know he lived because Jesus personally refers to him, and there were writings on him, and obviously, he was not intimidated by the de- demonic influences in this wicked city, because when he was given a choice to back off, he wouldn't even apologize. And, and, and think about this. Now we see, Jesus tells them, they were holding fast to his name. That word is kartos in the Greek. It means to take hold with a powerful grip. Hold it tight. They're holding the name of Jesus tight. We don't know what that means. I don't think we know, we really know, until it's life and death, right? So these Christians were holding tight to the name of Jesus, and it could not be taken from them. Like the believers in Smyrna, they were attacked religiously, socially, politically, and they were holding on. And the, the, the recorded story of Anipus is true. They were walking around with power. In a lot of ways, this was an amazing church. Verse 14, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and commit fornication. So what this verse is saying here is there were spiritual leaders in the church that were trying to turn the direction of the church to the point where they would compromise their faith so really the pagans would just leave them alone. Guys, if we, just, if, we, if we just do this, you know, you won't have to burn in the bull. And really, look at what's happening today. There, you know, there's things that I cannot say up here, or you get something called a red flag on YouTube. Three, three red flags, you're out. I don't want to be the one blamed. Mac's going to have to do that if he's going to take us off YouTube. But I can tell you, all right, that our right to free speech is pretty much gone. Because if I stood up here and said all the things I really wanted to say, you would not see us on YouTube. I just, okay, you know, there's some people leaving the last service, and, you know, I just, I ask if I offend you this service, that you please come back from Mac on August 7th, okay? (laughs) It's... It's not, it's, it's not my intention. Um, this is what was going on in Pergamos, more or less. I'm sure their speech was altered. I mean, this church at Pergamos had stood up to horrible, evil persecution. Jesus was trying to tell them there's something being formed on the inside of the church that is more dangerous to the future of your church and to your effectiveness here where you dwell in the seat of Satan. This is dangerous. In the phrase in the Greek context, I have a few things against thee. 
He's saying, I, it's what it's saying is, I feel really deeply about this. This is what Jesus called the doctrine of Balaam. Remember, Balaam, the king of, it was Moab, M-O-A-B, Moab, Moab, Moab. He was trying to get this warlock by the name of Balaam, famous warlock. He was so famous that every curse he had ever leveled against another human being had gone through and worked. He was known for that. And so this king, he's got two and a half million Israelites passing through his country. They were not making war on him. And they're in the valley, and he brings Balaam up on this mountain, and he says, curse him, and he paid him a lot of money. So Balaam goes to curse two and a half million Israelites, and he, and he says, the Lord takes control of his tongue, and he says this beautiful blessing over him. He sits there, and he's, he's blessing him in front of the king. He's blessing him. And the king, it's, it's funny, to re, you should read this. If you, you've got talking animals and all kinds of things in this story. But, 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 but he, the king was like, it was, oh, it must be location here. Let's go over here and do it from this part of the mountain. You go over there. You ready? You ready to curse him? Yeah, I'm ready to curse him. All right, curse him. Uh, and he'd just bless them and just love them. And God would speak through them about how perfect they were. God said, this, I see perfection. Paraphrasing. He, he, he was saying, I, I see perfection and how I love them. And they, they weren't perfect. They're in the wilderness. They were, they were not nice people. They weren't perfect. Why were they perfect? Why did God see them as perfect? Because of the animal sacrifices were covering their sins. So think about that. If God saw them as perfect, if we put that, that image up, that sculpture, how does he see you? Think about that sacrifice. That's called the righteousness of God. That's a, that's a gift. That's a New Testament gift. But Balaam makes a suggestion, and really he was suggesting compromise. This is how you do it, king. I might not be able to curse him, Remember Balaam's donkey was yelling at him? He should have been yelling at him. He was mean to that donkey. And I mean, if I, I, was, I have a 15-week-old golden retriever, and I was commanding him to talk. Not like bark, but talk. So if he ever talks, I'm bringing him up here. That'll be a sign and a wonder, right? But but remember, Balaam literally taught that king, Balak, how to put forth a stumbling block in front of the Jews. Remember, prior to Moses showing up to lead them out of Egypt, they were all worshiping idols. This is why you could snap your fingers, Moses is up the mountain, comes back down the mountain, they're worshiping a golden calf. Because that's what they came out of. And the people of Pergamos were the same way. This is what they had come out of. Most of them were former eaters of idol sacrificed foods, participants in sexually active worship of the gods. So what Balaam told the Moab king to do was bring in a bunch of beautiful women, camp around the outside of the camp, expose the Israelite men to these women, so they're running around the camp out there with no clothes around the camp with no clothes on. And you know, and they would say part of the way they would worship their idols is through sex. And they'd ask the young, probably starting with the younger men, would you like to worship with me? You know? And maybe they didn't give the sexy wink, I don't know. They're running around the camp. Every day it would wear you down. It wore them down. They were there every day, day after day. Within six months, the, the, the Jewish males were marrying them. Eight, nine months, they're worshiping their gods. But it's hard for me to believe that's because he's telling Pergamos the wording he used. They, he said, you're holding fast to my name. They're not running around fornicating, okay, like the Hebrews were. What Satan does, this verse tells us, he employs tactics starting with small compromises. 
They just looked, they started out look, looking, just looking. And then they looked more, looked more, looked more. He, lure, he, he does small compromises with the church to lure us away from the simple faith of the cross and the resurrection, in the cross and the resurrection, and all that that does. It seems strongly hinted here in verse 14, it, it was done slight, with slight, slightly, Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. I mean, imagine when they showed up. They brought those tents down there for those ladies, for, for those ladies of Moab, right, and set them up, and they're just watching, because they're in, they're in their land, right? The Israelites weren't looking for war. They were just trying to get through it. And so it's a stumbling block. Jesus said it's like what happened to them. This is really an attack from inside the church where you had powerful deacons uh, maybe assistance to the pastor or bishop in charge of what was behind what was doctrinal error. And I think it was becoming hard for these believers at Pergamos to say no to these leaders from the inside whom a lot of them were probably really close to. We just l- looked at the verse again. If you look at the word against, it's the Greek word kata. It's a strong word that means a downward motion that carries the thought of subjugation. And really looking at it, and all these scholars are saying Jesus was warning these leaders in the church, if you're looking at it in the Greek, if you don't change your mind, therefore change your focus, I will deal with you, I will subjugate you. This is referring to, remember verse 12, these things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. It really does bring an understanding to those two verses, you know. Think not that I come to peace to send peace on earth. I, I, I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now remember, Jesus calls it a doctrine of Balaam. In Numbers 22, 7, Balaam is called a diviner. In the Hebrew, that means a witch or a medium. So in summing up verse 14, this group of powerful leaders in the church at Pergamos started compromising compromising in their messages, trying to make the church compromise in order to take the political, religious, and cultural pressure and persecution off the church. And really, the question should be asked to us, are we accepting the cultural norms in our culture if we apply that to us? If culture's gonna tell us something is normal, that's normal. We just accept that. We just accept the transgender, he, him, it, they, them, she, her. We just accept that. You got teachers being fired. One was fired in the school at Michigan because that boy wanted to be addressed like a cat. He thought he's a cat not a he, him, it, they, them, she, her, but a cat. So he meowed at her, and she wouldn't meow back. So she got fired. And I have a friend, and this is not, this is not rumor. This is the truth, or I wouldn't be telling it. A friend in Anoka, he's a teacher in Anoka, teaching for years. You have litter boxes going into public school bathrooms because kids want to be called cat. Therefore, they go to the bathroom like cats. They're called the furries. They wear little tails and ears. And... You know, here, listen now, I, 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 <laughs> someday I'll give my whole testimony, and you'll quickly see that I don't, I don't deserve to pass judgment on anyone, and I wouldn't, personally. Okay, this, this is not, I know there's people in here that have had abortions. And I'll tell you what, could you put the sculpture up? He died for that. You can't be condemned for that in God's eyes. Matter of fact, God has a scripture in the new covenant that says our sins and iniquities, he doesn't remember. 
or our sins and iniquities, he has mercy on our lawless deeds of unrighteousness. He doesn't remember no more, anymore. There's a lot of things of mine he doesn't remember, right? So I'm not, you've been, you've been cleansed of that. I'm not, I'm, not going, I'm, not, I'm not going after that. I'm going after the doctrine that's coming into the church of murdering an unborn child. Yeah, sin is sin. Fear is sin. Worry is sin. Unforgiveness is sin. Anything not done out of faith is sin. I'm not judging anyone, but that doesn't mean you have to compromise what you believe. Regardless, we're not talking about the past. We're talking about moving forward. We're not talking about what people have done in the past. If you're looking at the laws carefully, they're desensitizing us to pedophilia. They want to take out the name pedophilia and call them adults attracted to minors. People just aren't paying attention. This is very true. The legislation trying to be pushed through in different parts of the country. Our very own national health secretary wants to see a, eight, see a child of eight years old be able to decide if they should be a boy or a girl. And from there, they will give them something called a puberty blocker. And it does not allow you to go through puberty as your birth gender. And as they are saying, and they are saying if that parent stands in the way, they can be prosecuted. And the church is just watching all this. They push this stuff through so silently, quietly. Imagine your eight-year-old not being able to say, no, you're not doing that. Oh, you're going to go to jail for that. I know I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, and I do not, by any means, I'm not judging people. I'm, I'm judging things going forward here in, in doctrine You've got members of the church sitting around killing each other on social media, trashing each other while our country goes in the toilet and no one says anything. You know? These things have been bought into the church and accepted. Uh, we, we put this on the, this is going up on the final hour podcast on Tuesday. We read this. It says the article says, woke churches label pro-life movement a demonic agenda and claim God is pro-choice. Woke churches across the country have celebrated abortion and even gone as far as labeling pro-life movement a demonic agenda in the wake of the Supreme Court's de decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Woke culture has infiltrated many Christian churches across the country. Methodist, Episcopalian, United Church of Christ seemingly distorting scripture and advocating for abortion in the wake of the Supreme Court's ruling to overturn Roe. One very large church, I will not quote the name of the pastor, he says, this is not about reproductive rights, this is, this is about voting rights, it's about civil rights, it's about human rights. He also asserted that the pro-life movement is the beginning of a demonic agenda and called on the church to get in the gap. So you're using it, that's a, that's a prayer phrase there, stand in the gap. One of the clergy at St. Luke's Episcopal Church told the congregation that he once viewed abortions as killing babies, that is, until he prayed for a deeper understanding of the issue. Some view abortions as babies being killed, as I once did before praying for a deeper understanding. He added laws that restrict and take away freedoms are never on the side of Jesus and a God of justice. So... It's not about, it has not, in, in my book, I don't even understand what that means when he's saying it's, 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 it's about, it, this is about voting rights and about human rights. It's about killing babies that can't make the decisions for themselves. That's all it's about, you know? And so, and there's all kinds of things like this going on, all, all kinds. And this, this is Pergamos. In the American church. You can't say it's not. When they're quoting scripture, at, at, <laughs> like, like flipping it, like we got this in prayer, I got a revelation. It's okay. That's what they're saying. And that word stumbling block Jesus uses is scandalon in the Greek. It's a trap that catches an animal. He's like, you're stepping into a trap like an animal. Pergamos. If you study these Moabite women, they were literally parading themselves in front of the men. 
with, with absolutely no clothes on. Just to make them look. It just started with them looking. Revelation 2.15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate? Remember the church at Ephesus, Jesus was commending because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus in turn said he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Well, now we have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans being held. It's being taught by numerous leaders in the church because he said they're holding it. Nicolaitanism is kind of like it's that, it goes hand in hand with that philosophy. Well, let's all be open-minded. Everyone on the inside of them has a part of truth. Everyone is right and no one's wrong. That's, that's what Nicolaitan, Nicolaitanism is. It was actually a, a merging of the occult and Christianity, Nicolaitanism. And what was happening through the doctrine being held by the Pergamos church is it, it's giving, us, giving the sense of multiple people and leaders in that church are embracing this doctrine and, and promoting merging occultism with paganism. And people were being influenced by the Nicolaitans. They were holding this doctrine to compromise their stance, to relax what they believed. And in essence, they were really, they, it was to become good friends with the world and be more like them. If we're more like them, then they'll, they'll be better, better chance they'll accept Jesus. For more like them. You get more of them to accept Jesus. Verse 16, he says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What this is saying is these leaders at Pergamos, if they didn't change their mind, which will change their focus, he's coming quickly. And we know, I know as a 54-year-old man, God will be patient with people that are living or believing or preaching in error, but when he does move, he moves quickly. And Jesus is telling them, I'm giving you an opportunity. If you do not listen to me, I'm coming straight to you. And he's more or less saying, this is your final opportunity. And what it really is saying is they had already been warned, probably in numerous ways, and his warning really was actually his love for them, pleading with them, saying, you guys still have time to get this done. You can turn this around. And this last phrase, it's a sobering phrase. I will fight against them with the sword in my mouth. That word is polemos, to fight. It means to make war against. He's saying to the leaders at Pergamos, if you stay in the false doctrines, compromising, merging with the world, it's going to be war. And, And what he's saying here in verse 16 The word sword in the Greek, it's not a Roman sword. It's not the word for that. It's a sword from the Greek city of Thrace, a Thracian sword. They were were great warriors, the Thracians. This sword was on the end of a long pole, a blade about this long, and it, it curved a little, and it had two edges. So, And what it was used for was to chop through thick armor, but it has a really long reach. And he's saying, I'm going to give you guys a chance here, but I'm coming with a spiritual sword and I'm taking back the church. I'm going to cut it out. I'm going to cut that doctrine out because this church is mine. That's what he's saying. Verse 17, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit says unto the churches to him that overcometh. Will I give to eat of hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth, saveth he that receiveth it. As we can see, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying unto the churches. The word churches being plural is saying it applies to all churches, not just in 96 AD, of all ages, including us today. Looking at the phrase, to him that overcometh, which I have given him to eat with, hidden, with the hidden manna, Well, we know what manna is. Exodus 16, the Israelites ate it for 40 years. 
Manna in different places in the Bible is called food from heaven. The bread of the mighty, the bread of heaven. In my opinion, and there are two commentators that I read on this, that the, the hidden manna is referring to Jesus Christ himself who describes himself as the true bread of life. Christ, we have everything. Redemption, sanctification, grace, which is unmerited favor, strength and empowerment, the gift of righteousness. What's that? The ability to stand before God no matter what you've done without a sense of guilt or inferiority. All these things, it, it, Jesus is the hidden manna and by the Holy Spirit himself, through faith, Christ gives himself to us who are one with him. Can we look at 217 again as we close. And I, okay, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So this is one of the few things in the entire book of Revelation that most scholars do not know for sure what this means. But I've told you guys that before, and come back with more information later. All right? But I couldn't, no, everyone that I read said, no one, this is all conjecture, what I'm about to give you. T different theories. The Romans would give their citizens a white stone with their name on it, which would give them food. That was a big part of Roman life, is that government regularly gave food and grain and bread to their citizens on a daily basis. And woe be unto the emperors that didn't. The mob would take them out. The Roman mob, if they didn't. The white stone could be, it was a ticket. It was a free ticket also into the Colosseum. It would have their name on it. Another opinion that I read from an Assemblies of God scholar is there was a custom for voting for the guilt or innocence of someone who was involved in a court case. It was the jury got a, a white stone or they got a, they got a black stone. If the jury member thought he was guilty, he would put the black stone in the container. If he judged the defendant innocent, he would put the white stone in the container. The black stone being a symbol of guilt and condemnation, the white stone being a symbol of the fact that they were being voted innocent and justified. The phrase, new name written, which no man knows, say, he who receives this, this is conjecture. But it's saying that personality will also be in heaven. If you look deep into this, individual character will be emphasized to perfection. That's why it says only he who receives the name shall know it. The, and perfection, a personality will be emphasized and developed to its highest glory. This is conjecture, but scholars believe that each saint will know his own name only. I think that I think that that would be kind of dumb. Like, hey you, right? Hey, come over here. I'm sure we're gonna have names, right? But what this is saying is you you've got a special name from Jesus. Just that you and him know. Okay? He gives you, we know that's for sure. They're, they're saying this means in heaven with God shining forth through his humanity up there in complete fullness and beauty that coming from Jesus Christ into all the members of his body at once, and it reaches full realization, and not in each individual saint, but in the harmony of everyone being together, each personality knowing his own name, knowing that it's special, is saying that each particular child of God will manifest their own special shade of God's image up there, is what... I was able to find on that scripture, and so, so how 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 you guys want to end this, anyways? You want to should we hand out some popcorn or some nachos? End it like a service has never been ended before. Can I pray over you guys before we're done? And and remember, remember, it's it's just this this helped me. This uh, it helped me with peace, like. Uh, Michael, could you could look, watch this now? I'm gonna hand Michael these glasses, right? This is what this is what I was trying to tell you, but I gave them to him, right? And he took them, he took them. So it's like the Lord is like, just it's easy. It's just like you're taking it. It's like I'm handing it to you and you're taking it. It's like I'm handing it to you, taking. Okay, sit down, Michael.
No, but it, it, just take it. And then he, he, he's, like, he's like, open your heart. Yes, I, I just got to open your heart. It's easy. Tell yourself, this is easy. This is supposed to be easy. We're talking about receiving from God. Just from here, here to here to here. Okay? I'm gonna, I just pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, you bless them. You make your face shine upon them. And I, and I, in the name of Jesus, from our seat of authority in the heavenlies, out of our heavenly ministry today, we, we, we bind any spirit of deception coming into this church. Not just this church, but the churches of Minneapolis, St. Paul. We bind you. We rebuke you. We resist you. And we command you to be gone. And while we're at it, any spirit of rejection or an abandonment assigned to anyone in this room, you be gone so they can hear. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would grant unto living word, grant unto living word online, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in these complicated days, insight into mystery and secret in the deep and intimate knowledge of you. By having the eyes of their hearts, yes, your, your eyes, your heart has eyes, flooded with light, so they can know and understand the hope to which they have been called, Lord. And how rich is your glorious inheritance. Help them understand that inheritance doesn't cost anything. It's something they receive. Help them understand. Paul prayed that, that they would understand their inheritance. Know what it is. I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would come to know and understand the immeasurable, unlimited, and surpassing greatness of your power that you said is in them and for them just because they believe. What kind of power? You said it's the same power that you demonstrated by the working of your mighty strength, which you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead. That kind of power is on the inside of you. And Paul's praying, may you know it and understand it. I thank you, Lord. You have set all things under their feet. Help them know that. Gave him to be head over all things. To who? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. Help them know the fullness of you, Lord. That is such my desire. No, I would give anything for them to know the fullness. In the name of Jesus Christ. So be it, so was it, and so it is. In the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 I'm going to miss you guys. The 11, you just, the 11, I mean, even again, when they're singing amen, at the end of the service, I'm like, are these people just going to float out of here? I mean, this service knows how to enter in. Like, you want it. You want it, and that is expressed. And just what you pull, just how you pull, it, it's just amazing. I just want to thank you so much. I love you guys. I promise you, you will be in my prayers. You are in my prayers every day. God bless you guys.